This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Recovery Radio. Hope you know about us by now. We've been here, oh, four or five years now, more, I think, talking about what originally began as a singularly substance abuse and recovery, and we've broadened our, pur- broadened our purview to, con- uh, to cover what's now referred to as behavioral health. That's a wide range of a lot of issues that affect a lot of people. Recovery Radio is sponsored by Retreat Behavioral Health. We'll tell you more about them straight ahead. Well, as a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you about them right at the top. We have been highlighting an event they are having, Retreat is having, in uh, in Florida uh, the end of this month that focuses on uh, mental health among young people. The uh, The panel is going to be discussing mental health crisis protecting our youth. We have highlighted uh, all of the panel panelist members uh, so far, and uh, uh, today's guest is our uh, our uh, final panelist. We are very happy to welcome to the program to talk about not only that panel but her work, Dr. Linda Mills. Uh, Dr. Mills is vice chancellor as well as senior vice provost from New York University. That is a very short description of a very big job. In addition to which, she she her academic work. She also has an interesting background and continues to work as an accomplished producer and filmmaker. A lot of her projects we will be talking about straight ahead. We are very pleased to have Dr. Linda Mills with us from New York City. Dr. Mills, thanks for joining us on Recovery Radio. Did I get, I get most of that right? You were. That was perfect. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that, I, that's a pretty short description of a, of a very, very big job. Can we begin with, you know, what the vice chancellor and uh, vice provost for global programs and university life at NYU uh, encompasses? Sure. So NYU has 15 global campuses. Um, We include in that definition Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. Um, But we are all over the world, and at any given time, about 3,000 students or NYU students are at one of our other campuses other than uh, NYU NYU in New York, NYU Abu Dhabi, or NYU Shanghai, which are the three four-year campuses that NYU has. So I am responsible essentially for the larger movement of students outside of the main campuses. Uh, they can visit Italy or France or London or so um, there are, as I said, 15 of them. And in that process, obviously, students encounter challenges and also hopefully have a remarkable transformative experience. That's the sort of global side of my work. And then in addition to that, I am responsible for student life at NYU and the student experience. So that's both at NYU in New York, but also their experience as they travel the globe. Wow. Talk about uh, what, what is that? What is that Latin expression in, 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 in the place of the parent? You've got <laughs> you, you have a, a, yeah. a, a gigantic job overseeing yeah. stu- the, the, the phrase student life is fascinating. Because here, here, here you are, and a uh, an official of this university with responsibilities to oversee something that I think, for most people who are not students, uh, probably don't have the slightest idea of what student life means at a university, at any university, much less NYU. So, what what kinds of issues would you deal with with regard to their life as a student? Yeah. So anywhere from the really positive experiences that students have outside of the classroom to the really difficult experiences that students might have outside of the classroom. And so 
the very positive experience are experiences may include living in the residence hall, programming that might be associated with living in the residence hall, the ways in which students interact in clubs and other related university and school-based programs. So it really is the idea that there is so much more than just what happens in the classroom, and that's what university life for students encompasses in the most positive sense. Mm -hmm. The more challenging or more difficult sense of the student life experience is when students encounter difficulties, whether that's um, their own challenges related to mental health or health, but also challenges, for example, or issues related to sexual misconduct. So I am not personally responsible for sexual misconduct or that unit, but obviously when students experience something difficult that happens, um, I'm involved in uh, the supportive structures at a strategy level mm -hmm. for making sure that students' needs are met to the best of our ability. <coughs> Pardon me. It's an extraordinary moment for young people and a big change to move from the security and familiarity of being, you know, at home with, with with people you know and love, and then very often to move away to a, f a different place um, and experience new things and new challenges. In your experience, it, 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 is this a particularly difficult time uh, for young people to make that transition, or does every generation feel that way? Yeah, fantastic question. And what I'd say is both are true. In other words, it is a particularly vexing time, and I'll talk about that in a minute, and it is like every generation that encounters that transitional moment from being dependent on an adult in one way or another to that sense of independence, living on your own for the first time, having to be responsible for you, for some students. Some students obviously come uh, with uh, uh, a real history of having been independent for a long time. But all that is to say that there, those kind of critical transitions always evoke challenges for young people. So that's sort of what I'd say more generally. But I do think this is a particularly difficult time, mm. in large part because our country is so divided politically. And, and so... And, and this is something we could explore further, but let me just give you a little bit of what that feels like, you know, from a student's point of view. A student who doesn't feel as though they are safe on a campus because they aren't sure whether the federal government might start asking questions about their own history or their legitimacy of being in this country, that that can feel incredibly threatening to a young person who's trying to study and advance in the world, and or visa threats. So there was the period um, a few years ago when a set of countries, where there, there was imposed on a set of countries and a set of students who came from those countries, different sets, different kinds of visa requirements. And that came almost out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, students who were, you know, busily getting their jobs done as students were confronted with a set of issues mm. that they thought were well settled. For those for for folks who were on college campuses in the sixties and seventies, sixties anyway, the, the notion of a divided country is not anything new. The addition, no. I, I want you to comment on the additional and huge yeah. factor that, unlike 
the 60s and the turmoil on college campuses and the divisions in the country. That generation was nowhere near as connected to it all through technology as these kids are, correct? Obviously. Yeah, there's no question that technology raises a whole other set of questions. I mean, what I'd say about the 60s was the threat was slightly different, which is at any minute you could be called to the draft. So there was a different kind of immediate threat for people, but you are 100% right that technology and the overlay of technology presents a whole new set of challenges for the divide between students who feel just fine about the direction of this country and the ways in which that gets articulated and others who feel incredibly threatened by it. Are parents and, uh, and uh, high schools, I guess, and counselors uh, and the whole support uh, um, organization that supports these kids before they get to college, are they pre- in your experience, are they preparing kids uh, sufficiently for this, this change? When, when you get them, are they ready? You know, no, is what I'd say, but I, I hate making sort of broad statements about every high school and or parent. Um, I think there are people who are more sophisticated about these issues and insightful, and, and I don't mean that because they're somehow smarter, but because they have access to these issues in ways that most of the country doesn't, frankly. Um, and so, you know, as a parent, for example, of a college student who just graduated, I understand that social media is a profound influence in ways that can be productive and counterproductive. And a lot of parents don't venture into their students' world, into their children's world in these very direct ways in order to understand uh, exactly how social media, for example, is, is either wreaking havoc or being productive. And I think social media can be both, um, or the ways in which people communicate technologically now. So. Uh, what I'd say, and, and I think the high schools have not, are not caught up yet. And for that matter, it's not clear to me that colleges or universities are caught up. It's such a fast-moving mm-hmm. target mm-hmm. in terms of this change that I think, you know, we're all just swimming as fast as we can. Yeah, you're right. Things change uh incredibly swiftly. Dr. Linda yeah. Mills is our guest. Uh, Dr. Mills is vice chancellor for global programs at the university, uh, NYU University, in that capacity, as she's telling us, she oversees student life as well as her uh, global duties because it's a big school. Uh, Dr. Mills is also going to be a panelist that retreats West Palm Beach panel entitled The Mental Health Crisis Protecting Our Youth. If you're in the uh, Florida area around July 24th and this issue uh, is important to you, uh, you are invited July 24th. It begins at 6 o'clock. And is that your dog barking in the background? No, no, no. Are you hearing some, some I, noise? No, it's actually outside. And oh. that, there's nothing I can do about that. Sorry. You can't get, you can't get New York to be quiet. Huh? Anyway, yeah, uh, exactly. Dr. Mills is going to be on that panel. When we come back, we're going to pick up on this notion of a mental health crisis on Recovery Radio. Stay with us. We have more. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Our guest uh, on the telephone from New York City, Dr. Linda Mills. Dr. Mills is going to be a panelist on the Mental Health Crisis uh, Symposium they're having at West Palm Beach uh, at Retreats Facility down there on July 24th. She uh, joins us in her capacity as Vice Chancellor 
and Senior Vice Provost for NYU. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, not only we've been talking about her academic work, she also has a fascinating background in documentary filmmaking. Uh, I want want to, uh, Dr. Mills, swing now into this uh, central notion of a healthcare uh, crisis among our young people, uh, I guess most sharply uh, drawn into focus by the alarming numbers uh, of kids who are suicidal and, in fact, uh, in fact, uh, commit suicide. I, I, I think it's now the second leading cause of death among that that uh, that cohort. Uh, are, are, are in, in your experience again, and I know we don't want to generalize about these things, but when kids are at this age are getting into a situation with college and the changes that are going on there, do you find that they are uh, sort of emotionally ready for this? Are they fragile? Uh, what accounts for this crisis? I guess. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's what the change that has happened is that there was a way in which certainly in my own generation that uh, and I'm 60 just to say um, that students that we were it was reinforced that going to college meant that it was this period of exploration but it certainly wasn't a kind of uh, emotional journey that one is taking that open that you should be open to whatever comes your way use that as an opportunity to explore your own emotional psychological life and run with that in ways that can be really painful but also really uh, challenging and interesting and so you know it wasn't psychology and emotionality wasn't really talked about and with the advent of a whole lot of good mental health research, we started to see the possibilities that students who were more fragile, young people who were more fragile, could actually tolerate and experience all kinds of um, educational environments that perhaps in the past they couldn't, but that doesn't mean that they don't bring that fragility and that history with them. So what I'd say is there have been some changes both culturally that enables a kind of self-reflection that in previous generations we didn't really see and combine that with mental health research and medical research that has led to enabling people who otherwise suffer from what might in the past have been more crippling mental health um, issues can now somehow manage differently because of drugs and, and you know, intensive therapy, et cetera. And so I think we do have, at one level, a more fragile community, uh, but in part because culturally we're paying attention to that, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. That, from my point of view, is a positive development. Mm-hmm. So it just it's just you know, continuing to monitor what is rather than making judgments about where we are, I think is probably the best way of putting it. Well, you know, and um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, the, uh, you know, in addition to being somewhat more fragile approaching these these issues, they are, in fact, at greater risk. And I know one of the things that, that you are focused on in your work as both the, a uh, an educator and as a filmmaker is – and, I, and this phrase is absolutely fascinating. So, something um, that refers to suicide contagion. Um, what does that mean? Can you? It sounds like you can catch yeah. suicide. What, what are we talking about here? Yeah, what we're talking about is something that 
we don't do a lot of talking about, um, which is that the evidence shows, the research shows, that when suicide happens in a community, and if that suicide is presented in a way that is counterproductive to those who are vulnerable to suicide, that those people who are vulnerable, in a sense, put suicide on their list, right? Before we had coping mechanisms that said, I'll call the therapist, I'll, in, I'll call my psychiatrist and say, you know, I'm more depressed than I used to be. I will call a friend and go out. I will engage in social media in a productive way so that I'm not so isolated. There were 15 things, maybe more, that one could do to address when they were feeling, you know, essentially vulnerable, or for that matter, that they were traumatized. I will get help for what happened to me. And what I think has happened as, as social media, in particular amongst young people, has proliferated is that suicide has become an option for young people, and then that becomes contagious insofar as it puts that option on other people's lists. And perhaps the most famous example is Robin Williams. There has been a lot of research around this, but one of the more recent studies showed that there was a 10% rise in the number of suicides um, after Robin Williams died. And that is in large part because Robin Williams is famous and because so many people identified with him and felt, and I heard this quite directly from vulnerable people, that if Robin Williams had no reason to live and made that choice, then I really have no reason to live. Yeah, and the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the television uh, um, star and author Anthony Bourdain's death resonated the same way. If Anthony Bourdain could not be happy and thought this was a viable solution to his pain, then I guess it's a viable solution. Yeah. It, it's, it's, and it's extraordinary. What's interesting... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. So what's interesting is that each, each of those suicides triggers in a certain community, for example... The, the particular rise in, as a result of what happened with Robin Williams was 13%. There was a 13% rise among men 30 to 44, 30 years old to 44 years old. And for whatever reason, that was the community that most identified with Robin Williams. And we saw it in Kate Spade as well. So whenever you see a famous person committing suicide, even if, as it later came out in Robin Williams' case, that perhaps... He was looking at a very dark future that the reasons don't penetrate. In other words, that's not relevant to your life at the age of 30 to 44 years old mm -hmm. in the same way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but for those that identify with the person who have, who has died, and you may remember in the Kate Spade example, there was, there were similar statistics among women in her age group. Um, they are the ones that get triggered in terms of this contagion. So let's return to young people, because what can happen is in a high school, if you have one suicide, that, that then becomes a contagion. Linda, oh, good. Let's hold it there and pick this back up, because this, is, uh, this goes to the heart of what I think we want to talk about on the program today. Uh, Linda Mills, Dr. Linda Mills is our guest. We have more with her straight ahead. This is Recovery Radio. Do not go away. 
Welcome back. We're going to pick up with our discussion with our guest, Dr. Linda Mills from NYU Straight Ahead. I want to just remind you that uh, Retreat Behavioral Health, the sponsor of the program, wants you to know that any questions or comments or anything at all that you've heard on the program, this program or others, or anything that concerns your mental uh, health, your substance abuse questions, they have sponsored this program as an informational and educational tool. That's all. World-class facility for sure, but I give you the phone number as an informational tool in a crunch they can answer questions for you. 855-859-8808. That's how you reach Retreat Behavioral Health. 855-859-8808. Dr. Linda Mills will be a panelist on Retreat's Mental Health Crisis Panel, Protecting Our Youth. That's scheduled for the 24th in the West Palm Beach area. You are invited. Check out uh, Retreat's website for more information about that. Uh, Dr. Mills, we're going to get a little deeper into this notion of uh, options that young people have. Most people, as we said before the break, would view options, uh, a lot of options, as a, a beneficial thing. It, it's not always the case. So if I understood you before the break, young people who are in pain or in a dark place or struggling with um, with mental health issues or trauma or whatever uh, are now in a position where, because they see famous people killing themselves – of viewing suicide as just another choice that they could make. Is that what I understand you to have said? Yeah, and that gets exacerbated when in their immediate community, they observe people also putting it on their list or, you know, to think in the most painful of senses, that they know somebody who has committed suicide. And for a long time, we've known that if a family member can commit suicide, that that increases the chances of any other member of that family committing suicide. It opens the door. It, it gives permission to the rest of the family in a way. And that's what's happening both nationally in the U.S. I mean, it's an international phenomenon, obviously. But when you have such public death such as Bourdain and Robin Williams and, and Kate Spade, that those become then a kind of permission for other people to do it. And also there is this rise of suicide among young people. And so young people who in the past may not even think it's an option. I wouldn't do that to my family. I couldn't bear to do that. You know, I couldn't bear to even think about doing that to myself, let alone... You know, there are many ways in which people talk themselves out of suicide that somehow now, for a host of reasons, both public but also personal, suicide has become uh, an alternative for people in ways that it hadn't been in the past. Yeah, these kids are blessed by many benefits of living in the, this moment in time, uh, but having so many options in front of them at such a young yeah. point is, is not necessarily a good thing. You know, there's a time in this country when people in polite conversation, didn't mention cancer or that someone in the family might have cancer. It was sort of verboot. You didn't talk about it. If it came up, it came up. We're right there with, with suicide. That's changing a little bit now. But we still have this um, fear of talking about it, don't we? Yeah, we do. And in fact, the question is how to talk about it in ways that it's productive rather than counterproductive, right? And so we want people to talk about it. We want people to say, I have to confess it's on my list 
because if they confess, if they can bring themselves to share that important piece of information, we can, with that kernel, help them get to a better place. But if they don't confess and they don't tell anyone, there's no way to find your way into that. And this now gets to the question of how do we invite people to talk about suicide and this idea that they feel suicidal in ways that are productive and, and the possibility of um, helping them move towards a more uh, recovery-oriented path rather than deeper into the darkness. Well, you certainly are aware, as most of us are, that there was, as I said, very recently and to a large extent still occurring, this notion that if you were to go to a young person you thought was trouble, the last thing you would say to them, the last thing you would say to them is, are you thinking of hurting yourself or killing yourself? The fear being that you would put the idea in their head. Is that true or isn't it? It is untrue. And in fact, this isn't a question of putting it in someone's head. It is in you know, a large percentage of people's heads. It is an option now, unfortunately. And I I need to say that the media and a number of popular shows have contributed to the fact that it seems more reasonable to be thinking about suicide. And, you know, I, I both understand why we've gotten here and that we need to help reverse this trend in ways that help young people recognize we are seeing that they feel that darkness, but at the same time, that, that suicide is, is, is not, should not, you know, however you want to put it, without being judgmental, here are the reasons for living. Here are the reasons why taking the path back to the living is the right path. And I don't mean that in some moralistic or judgmental way, because everybody's going to have their own reasons for being in that darkness Mm -hmm. and the relentless darkness that it feels like. But we have to, through, through the expression of I feel suicidal, help each and every person in their own way find that kernel of the desire to live. Linda Mills is our guest. Dr. Mills is Vice Chancellor and Senior Vice Provost for New York University, NYU. We're talking to her about uh, her work in, in the area in academics, and certainly here we're going to talk about her film work straight ahead. Um, we're now focusing on the mental health crisis among young people. Extraordinary. It's the number two leading cause of death among young people. It's shocking all by itself. You know, it's always occurred to me that one of the things I think, and you tell me if this makes sense, I would say to someone young who was in or at any age, who was in this dark place and thinking about suicide, even if I were willing to agree with them that it's a viable option, don't they need to know it's the last option? It's the, there are a multitude of options bef- exactly. before it that they yeah. should try before yeah. before they get there. Yeah, and that that really is the problem with social media, frankly, in the unproductive version of social media, because I do think that social media can be productive which is that oftentimes it's too simplistic. And so you jump to that single conclusion at the end of the line, and you've missed the 19 to 25 versions of how do I, you know, bring myself back from this brink. And so um, that's exactly right. And what gets the most media attention is the act itself, mm-hmm. not the story of somebody who found their way back to living. Um, 
And, and that's really where I think prevention needs to focus. And a number of cities, I'm, I spend a lot of time in Los Angeles, a number of cities are, are striving, and this is the reason why we made the movie The Rest of Us, are striving to find, and I know we'll talk about that in a minute, but mm-hmm. are striving to find this pathway to helping people realize, so I think you've got this exactly right, realize what those 25 versions of leading up to the worst-case scenario, maybe. Exactly. And there's no escaping um, the fact that the, the, the notion of suicide as a way out is mm-hmm. more viable in people's minds today than ever before because executing a suicide has been made easier because of the availability of guns. Isn't that true? It is true, but it is true. And in fact, what is fascinating and painful is that Robin Williams' death actually promoted people um, dying by asphyxiation. So what's interesting is that, and and we saw that in the subsequent famous deaths that that we've witnessed, what's interesting is, yes, guns available are are seriously problematic, and it does make the means more um, available, but there are a lot of people who wouldn't consider guns as an option. And so really what happens is the publicity around the means becomes the method that people end up using. So I'm not, I'm not, yes, guns are a problem in this country for a whole host of reasons, including suicide. But the truth is the media's um, conversation about the ways in which people commit suicide then also provides the means by which young people in particular who might not have carried out the idea to its obvious conclusion start to think that it is an option and, uh, you know, should be put on the list. Uh, um, Let let me ask you about um, what the data shows us about where suicides are occurring. Do they occur in clusters? So, yes, and that is this contagion idea. What happens is there is one suicide and then the Students who were vulnerable to suicide say, well, if she did it, I can do it. If she did it, I should do it. You know, and this is particularly um, challenging among young people who are incredibly successful. And you often see the publicity around, uh, for example, there was an Olympian, you know, there have been a number of young people, famous young people, or people who are doing really well at college who then end up committing suicide and people saying, what? How did that happen? They had so much, right? And so then you have to remember that there is a relentless darkness at times, even for people who have so much. And so, yes, what happens is, just like we talked about in the case of Robin Williams, you can have a cluster that happens because people say, well, if she did it or he did it, then I certainly should, because it has been in the back of my mind, mm-hmm. and that helps with taking that next step. Well, and then the question becomes, how are you there quickly enough to prevent those next steps from happening? And also, how do you monitor the media to make sure, the media and communications, to make sure that it doesn't help those people who are vulnerable to take that next step and instead to take a resilient step towards life? It, it, it's a, a, a perverse and tragic twist yeah. on the notion of influencers in, yeah. so, in, the so, in social media. On the yeah. benign side is the Kardashians will show you what lipstick to buy and clothes to wear. And on the other, uh, other hand, without meaning to, 
a high-profile person commits suicide, and that's another influencer. Influencer, yeah. Dr. Linda Mills yeah. is our guest. We have, uh, we're going to talk about the rest of us straight ahead. I know uh, Dr. Mills wants to talk about her work on this film. This is Recovery Radio. Please don't go away. We're back with our guest, Dr. Linda Mills. Uh, Dr. Mills is uh, at NYU as a vice chancellor and senior vice provost. Uh, she also has a fascinating background in the documentary filmmaking, a writer, producer, director, and I want to talk to her in this final segment about some of the things we have been talking about with regard to suicide among young people and her work with film in that regard. Let's begin with the NYU reality show. Tell me about that. Yeah. So in 2003, NYU had a cluster of very public suicides um, in some very iconic buildings. Um, and it became clear at a very early stage in the development of suicide contagion. I mean, contagion has been around, this notion of contagion has been around for a long time, but we were one of the first universities to experience a contagion in a very public way uh, in New York City, of course, and in the media capital. And so we were um, forced, in a good way from my point of view, and I became responsible for this because I was the social worker in the senior administration, to develop a response to suicide and to develop a mechanism for suicide prevention. The first thing we did was start a hotline. We've now, over these uh, uh, now 15 years, received over 120,000 calls. I did an assessment of the national and local landscape of hotlines and really felt like NYU needed its own hotline. Um, and so we created a hotline. and. Um, the hotline is for anyone in the NYU community who's feeling vulnerable, vulnerable across any, uh, at any level, uh, from suicide to just I was traumatized in A, B, and C ways as a child or uh, more recently. And in that process, we have had the privilege of uh, helping a number of students move away from suicide as their only option and seeking services. So the hotline was launched in 2004, and then we immediately said to ourselves, how do we tell the story about NYU's commitment to mental health, particularly as the hotline became the sort of focal point for directing people to get help, but how do we tell that story in a compelling way for young people? So I joined forces with Elizabeth Suedos, uh, who sadly is no longer with us, um, died of cancer a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but she was a um, director, writer, remarkable um, artist who created theater. Um, and we decided that we needed to create a show for all incoming freshmen. Now it's about 6,500 students, freshmen and then transfer students. And that, that, that both... Um, put on the table for young for, for our students that we were committed to health and mental health in a way that, that was probably new to them because they were just leaving their parents. So maybe they had had access to services, but we were really going to talk about it in bold and direct ways and, in fact, do skits around suicide prevention quite explicitly. Um, and so we're now in a the 15th year and the show continues and it's a show written by students for students Preston Martin who was in the first show is now the director um, and so the show becomes this moment one hour long for all incoming students where we talk about these hard issues from how you use social media productively and unproductively to um, suicide prevention 
from there, I directed a short documentary that was in uh, Tribeca Film Festival called Better to Live in 2015 and that told the story of the suicide contagion and then how students now make this show called The Reality Show. Um, it was now three, four years ago that I wanted to tackle this question of contagion because nobody else in either the narrative world, film world, or in the documentary film world, who had really dealt with the question of contagion and the ways in which contagion can work on a college campus. So that's why we wrote The Rest of Us. And um, it was a devising process where we brought people in to think with us about what, um, what contagion looks like on a college campus and how we might write a script that would both address this seriously, the question of why students put suicide on their list, but more importantly, um, left you with the sense that the rest of us, the people who are left behind, are left holding that traumatic um, uh, outcome, namely suicide. And, and how you can follow a path of resilience as opposed to a path of suicide, so that's essentially what the rest of us is about. Well, it's, it's it's just it's a it's a remarkable effort. This idea of contagion is is uh, always fascinated me. With regard to the opioid crisis, I've thought for the longest time that if people would thought, could, could think of it, oddly enough, as something you could catch, then they would be more alarmed by it rather than oh. rather than thinking it's just not going to happen to me. It's going to happen to them, and and yeah. putting suicide in that context is. Uh, is, I think, very helpful. Uh, Dr. Mills, where can people see your films if they're interested in looking at them? So, um, Better to Live is online. I think you can put bettertolive.com, but you can also look at my website, Linda G. Mills. Um, at, just put in my name, and my website should come up, and all our films are, are set there. Um, so, and anybody can email me at Linda, L-I-N-D-A dot Mills, M-I-L-L-S, at nyu.edu, and I'm happy to answer any uh, questions people have. Dr. Mills, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks also for your participation in a couple of weeks in West Palm Beach on Retreat's Mental Health Crisis Panel Protecting Our Youth. We appreciate your time and your work. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Take care, everybody. Uh, Look for us wherever finer podcasts can be had. Take care. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.